thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Welcome to Season 6 of Talking Sleep. We wanted to start the new year by examining that time in our lives when we welcome new lives into this world. We often think about pregnancy as a joyful time, but for too many women in the U.S., pregnancy leads to significant morbidity and mortality. Our U.S. maternal mortality rate increased from 20.1 per 100,000 live births in 2019 to 32.9 per 100,000 live births in 2021. For Black women, this was 69.9 deaths per 100,000 live births. The causes are severe bleeding, infections, and preeclampsia or eclampsia. The CDC indicates that four out of five pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. are preventable. Dr. Gada Borgeli is here to show us how maternal mortality intersects with sleep medicine. She is board-certified in pulmonary medicine and is a professor of medicine at Brown University. She is also director of the Women's Research at Lifespan, the Women's Medicine Collaborative. Dr. Borgeli's clinical expertise is in pulmonary disease and pregnancy, and half of her patients are pregnant. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So I will admit that when I was, you know, Googling this, I was surprised that maternal mortality is worsening in the U.S. Why is that? Yeah, it's really a shame. We are doing worse now than we were doing about maybe two decades ago. Um, and there are multiple factors. Like it's not one thing that we can pinpoint, unfortunately, but there are some personal demographic factors that might impact it, like age, the increasing prevalence of obesity, uh, uh. and the comorbidities that come with obesity as well. And the fact that women that maybe were not able to get pregnant 20 years ago, now can with um, with assisted reproductive technology. So we end up with women that are sicker that are getting pregnant. But there are also things that are not uh, related to the person themselves, and they may have to do with our system in general. Like there are some population factors like social determinants of health, for instance, that might impact it. There are factors like these maternal deserts that exist in the U.S. So there are like, there's more than a thousand counties that are considered um, maternal deserts in that they, um, they don't have an obstetric hospital within them so that women have to travel in order to get obstetric care or see an obstetrician that can deliver their babies. And so that also impacts prenatal care access. So uh, there's a lot of women that still don't get adequate prenatal care. Maybe 6% of women don't get prenatal care when they're supposed to. Um, There are maybe 14 or 15 percent of babies who are born to women who do not get um, appropriate prenatal care. Like it's either late or it does not happen at all. So there are a lot of things that we need to do on a on a population level and mm. um, from a policy standpoint in order to make sure that we improve access of all women to the right obstetric care so that they can deliver safely 
And it's not just delivery. There are many women that die postpartum as well. Mm. Uh, so we need to make sure that they continue to have that insurance coverage after and that they continue to get the care that they need in order to, you know, be there for their families. Wow, that's a lot higher than I thought. Yeah, yeah, actually, it's, um, uh, there are some data, the um, March of Dimes collects data on uh, maternal morbidity and mortality, and uh, they update them uh, periodically. So it's a really good source to go and look at some of the information on there. Um, it's really sobering, and it tells us that there's a lot that we need to do. So how does sleep factor into all of this? Yeah, so um, sleep was maybe in the early 1990s, there were a couple of papers that have talked about sleep and, and breathing physiology during sleep in pregnancy and reported on, um, you know, some things that um, like some fetal decelerations that happen when women are having apneas during mm -hmm. sleep, etc., which raised... Um, some concerns initially, but things didn't really catch up until maybe a decade or even two later. Uh, so now there's more uh, data on this, but sleep has been connected to a lot of the, to some disorders, I should say, um, that are linked to severe maternal morbidity and mortality. So for instance, there are uh, many sleep disorders, uh, OSA being one of them and probably the most studied to date, uh, but there are other sleep conditions as well that have been linked to preeclampsia, which is one of the major causes of uh, of maternal morbidity and mortality. Uh, sleep is also um, linked to gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes is not a cause of maternal mortality per se, but it is a contributor to it because of the associated uh, comorbidities and outcomes as well. Mm. Uh, there are also higher rates of cesarean deliveries with um, some sleep disturbances uh, that have been studied as well. So the increase in cesarean deliveries may also be linked to adverse uh, maternal outcomes. So you talked about the um, risk of infection, the risk of bleeding, et cetera, um, the risk of embolisms, like pulmonary embolisms are one of the big causes of maternal mortality as well. So that risk is higher with cesarean deliveries. So there, there's a lot of, um, of overlap, maybe. I can't say that it's causality. It's hard to say that or sleep is leading to these things, mm. but it's probably contributing to them. And um, sleep is a reversible thing. It's something that we can modify. Uh, we can improve it. So that's why it is one of the very attractive things because many of the risk factors for these adverse pregnancy outcomes are actually not reversible. Like for preeclampsia, mm. there are a lot of risk factors, but we can't really... Um, modify these risk factors, but sleep, we could modify. So that's why it is such an attractive risk factor for pregnancy outcomes that um, that I think we should be very interested in and we should be thinking about. Yeah, that's a really good point because so many things are fixed, right? And they're not reversible. But so I'm sitting here, I'm trying to, I'm trying to connect the dot between C-section rate and 
sleep in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, short sleep duration, for instance, has mm -hmm. been linked to higher rates of uh, C-sections. It's also been linked to longer duration of labor. Nobody wants that. So, uh, you know, huh. moms should be sleeping better. I don't know if that <laughs> would uh, impact it one way or another, but we need to study that better. And then there are data about sleep apnea being uh, link to uh, higher rates of C-sections as well. Uh, could that be because of higher inflammatory conditions? Could that be because of mm. some indirect pathways that are leading to it? Um, and C-sections could be, they could be planned because of obstetric reasons, obviously, but they also could be um, like labor not progressing the right way, uh, leading to C-sections or they could be, you know, emergent and unplanned, uh, et cetera. So um, we need to learn a little bit more about this. But when we look at C-sections in general, uh, the rate seems to be higher. So could it be because they are higher, uh, there's a higher risk for preeclampsia and women with preeclampsia may have to be delivered urgently or have oh, some sure. complications. It's really uh, not very clear and not many studies have looked to separate the reasons for a C-section uh, in sleep huh. conditions. So are there guidelines that exist to screen for sleep disordered breathing during pregnancy? So um, funny you should mention this because uh, in <laughs> July, we just published a, uh, a Society of Anesthesia and Sleep Medicine guideline. Uh, we also worked with the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, SOAP, and the guideline was endorsed by the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and by, and it was supported by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And the guideline um, has, so we reviewed all the existing data on screening for sleep disorder breathing, when we should screen, et cetera. So even though we know that sleep disorder breathing, for instance, is um, associated with adverse outcomes, um, we know that snoring by itself is associated with adverse outcomes, the way to screen is not very clear, unfortunately, because there are so out of the questionnaires that have been developed outside of pregnancy most of them do not uh, perform very well in pregnancy and their performance might change with the timing in gestation that the mm. screening is happening at but uh, we had thought that the women that do need to be screened and we have to consider what is doable, like about maybe five and a half to six million women get pregnant in the U.S. every year. Oh, wow. Screening an additional six million people for sleep disorder breathing, for instance, huh. can create a lot of um, new sleep studies that need to be done and we're already falling behind. So in order to uh, do something where we screen the people that we think are at highest risk for sleep disorder breathing, uh, women that have obesity, for instance, women that mm. have diabetes or a history of um, hypertension, so uh, either chronic hypertension or hypertensive disorders of breathing, of uh, pregnancy, sorry, um, those women are at the highest risk, we think, for having sleep disorder breathing, and it would make sense uh, to do this. Uh, but this is not yet happening 
in obstetric care. Mm. And when I was looking something up about guidelines and about implementation of guidelines, I think the average time from a guideline being published to it being implemented across, you know, practices, et cetera, mm-hmm. takes about seven years or so. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yes, that yeah. is crazy. Like yeah. all the work that goes into making something part of routine clinical care is it takes too long. So when should we we be screening our pregnant patients for sleep apnea? Is this sort of a third trimester, first trimester? So the things that need to be considered when thinking about this are when can we so we don't screen for the sake of screening, right? We screen mm. because we want to do something about it. So we need to do it early enough in pregnancy where we could do something about it. So if we're screening someone in the third trimester, it actually would take a miracle to get them started on CPAP. <laughs> so yeah, it's that's really fair. hard. And like I'm not saying that there's no benefit to doing it, but from a logistic standpoint, it's really hard. Um, Potential benefits. So there have been some studies maybe in the early 2000 or so that have shown that in women that have preeclampsia, for instance, if you place those women on CPAP, their blood pressure gets better, their nocturnal cardiac output gets better, and maybe some markers of fetal well-being can get better as well. Um, But does it really change the the clinically important outcome is another thing that we need to think about. So yes, we can improve their blood pressure, but can we keep them pregnant longer, for instance? These are things that we don't know. So instead of delivering women uh, that have preeclampsia at, say, 32 weeks, can we now deliver them at 34 or 35 weeks so that baby has more time to mature um, in utero? These things we don't know yet. That makes so a lot of going, sense. Yeah. So going back to the screening thing, uh, the earlier, the better. But we have to keep in mind that pregnancy by itself can increase the risk for having sleep apnea. So if you screen them too early, you may miss out on some of the women that may develop sleep apnea later in pregnancy. So if you're screening them, say, at their first OB visit, at 10 weeks or so, then there hasn't been too many pregnancy-specific changes that have happened. So uh, you might get many women that are going to screen negative and then won't have sleep apnea, but they may develop sleep apnea later in pregnancy. And in fact, when we, we haven't published these data yet, but hopefully we will soon, but we looked at women that had obesity and complained of snoring. Um, habitual snoring. And we screened them in early pregnancy by about 13 weeks or so. About 20% of these women met criteria for OSA by age. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but then out of the women that did not meet those criteria that we studied in later pregnancy, so somewhere between um, like around 32 weeks or so, an additional 40% now met criteria. So huh. this is the this is where we need to balance this out. So if we screen them early, yes, we might detect um, we might detect people early, and we may be able to modify the the biology of pregnancy 
that actually predicts the development of these adverse outcomes like preeclampsia, for instance, because preeclampsia is determined at about 11 to 13 weeks of pregnancy. The, the biology starts happening. It doesn't manifest clinically until about 20 weeks or later, but the biology of it can start very early in pregnancy. So screening early has that advantage of potentially being able to modify that biology but we could be missing out, especially in these women that are high risk for sleep disorder breathing who have obesity or have snoring. There's a big chunk of them that is still going to develop sleep apnea later in pregnancy. So it's a balancing act. And in the guidelines, we said that second trimester is reasonable because um, we can catch more women that may have sleep apnea than we would in very early pregnancy, for instance. But the downside of that is that if we are screening then, we may or may not be able to modify outcomes, for instance. Um, and we'll talk about outcomes uh, if you want in a little bit. But so it's a balancing act. And I think um, the one other thing that I think would need to be considered with this is that at the initial OB appointment, there is so much information that is thrown at women. So they need mm -hmm. to know about all different kinds of screening, what to eat, what not to eat, you know, whether they should exercise or not exercise, how they should sleep. Like there's a lot of information that is given to these women at that time. And then talking to them about yet another thing, both from a woman's perspective and from a, a, a provider perspective, like that is adding to the burden of doing it. Mm. But we need to find ways to do this better in a not very intrusive way and to, uh, to incorporate it within the prenatal care so that we can screen as many women as possible. Yeah. So why is it important then to identify sleep apnea um, in early pregnancy? So it's really important to do that, I think, because a lot of the diseases that are happening later, and not diseases, the morbidities, I should mm. say, that happen in later pregnancy are, they have their biology rooted in early pregnancy. So things like um, insulin resistance, for instance. So we published a paper, I think last year or the year before, where we demonstrated that women that are in early pregnancy and have sleep apnea have higher insulin resistance than women that do not have obstructive mm. sleep apnea in early pregnancy. So there are things that we're seeing that are different early on. And then preeclampsia, for instance, the biology of preeclampsia starts happening at uh, very early in pregnancy. So by about 11 to 13 weeks or so, it things are determined already. And um, they're, so it, it's hard to change that biology mm -hmm. after the fact, because it has happened. We may be able to change hemodynamics, for instance, but not the not the underlying uh, pathology. And honestly, if we're going to think about the optimal time to do this, like I'll tell you, you did say that I see a lot of pregnant women early in pregnancy, but I'm starting to see women for preconception counseling that are ah. suspected of OSA. And these are, that's my favorite consult 
actually, because <laughs> then I have the time to make the changes that need to be made. Then I can talk to women about what their potential risk is. And then if there is something that I need to modify, I can modify it then so that when the pregnancy is happening, it's not happening under the circumstances of of desaturation and resaturation, mm. et cetera. So then that whole um, in utero milieu is m- much healthier in a way. And we don't have these triggers of airflow limitation that is leading to more inflammation. We don't have the oxygen desaturations that are happening. So this is the ideal situation. But the complicating factor is about 50% of all pregnancies are not planned. So we can't do it in mm. everyone. But this is where I think even people that do not see pregnant women on a regular basis, they can make a lot of difference in talking to women that are of reproductive age, for instance, Mm. about their plans for pregnancy. And this is something that we wrote something about this maybe three or four years ago for the clinics in chest medicine on the importance of preconception counseling for you know, any disorders, any chronic uh, conditions, for instance, and it needs to happen not just once, but, you know, periodically, maybe every two to three years, because people like an individual may not be planning a pregnancy today, but they're thinking about it in two years. And, you know, what you talk to them about today may not, you know, continue to register two or three years later. Mm. So these are things that need to be done in reproductive age women uh, repeatedly so that we can modify their risk for pregnancy uh, for later. So you mentioned logistics. Yeah. And, and so what I'm wondering is, is HSAT appropriate in this population? So many uh, level three HSATs have been uh, validated in pregnancy. So okay. I think they are an appropriate uh, uh, an appropriate technology to use. And again, from a logistics standpoint, women of reproductive age may have younger children. They may not want to sleep another night uh, or sleep a night outside of the home or something. And many, many of them prefer to have an in-home study uh, compared to an in-lab study. Um, and it seems to uh, HSA. AT, at least the level three devices, they seem to uh, to detect a, a good proportion of women that have sleep apnea. And if if you suspect sleep apnea in someone, obviously, and their um, HSAT is negative, then you can still sure. refer them for an in-lab thing. Sure. Uh, but they might be easier to use um, in this population as well. So when you talked about screening, I'm thinking about our existing questionnaires, for example, and I'm wondering if there are any validated questionnaires to use during pregnancy. Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, Many of the questionnaires that have been developed outside of pregnancy seem to perform poorly in pregnancy. Oh, Uh, really? Okay. Yeah, so Berlin, for instance, Mm. does not perform as well. Plus, there are differences in how they perform depending on the timing in gestation as well. So some that may perform um, well enough in early pregnancy may not perform as well in later pregnancy. So that's also something to keep in mind. There have been two questionnaires that were developed in a pregnant population, but um, one of them was tested in other populations and did not seem to be uh, to perform as well, especially in populations with obesity. 
the other one has not been validated outside of the original cohort. Um, so there's definitely a major need for this because obviously we can't test everybody for, uh, you know, financial reasons and logistical reasons and everything. So we need something that performs well and that correlates with this. And But for simplicity reasons and for people that would want to start asking questions of their pregnant patients, so if you're asking someone who has a history of hypertension or has obesity, for instance, you already have um, identified someone mm. who is at high risk for this. So if they have loud snoring, for instance, I would say um, these individuals would qualify to to be tested in this or if they have any additional symptoms or if they have a phenotype that is um, suggestive obviously then uh, you do that but like the the phenotype things and the physical exam things those are things that probably a sleep physician would do less mm. so an obstetrician so I think to keep it simple uh, for the uh, obstetric providers, uh, we need to have things that they can normally do or they can ask, um, you know, in an easier manner than, say, you know, measuring, uh, looking at tongue volume or looking at malampati or, you know, things like that. Sure. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about how sleep medicine clinicians can collaborate with our OBGYN colleagues to reduce maternal mortality. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Join colleagues and subject matter experts February 23rd through 24th for Sleep Medicine Trends 2024. Explore emerging technologies and innovations in sleep medicine that will enhance patient quality of care. Learn more at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Gada Borgeli about the relationship between sleep medicine and maternal mortality. So I, I, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, as sleep clinicians, we have this existing cohort of women of you know reproductive age with existing sleep disordered breathing who may think about getting pregnant. And so that seems like a really good conversation to have. Um, and what I'm thinking about is what about when you have a pregnant woman that goes to primary care or to see us? So how do you know if it's like normal pregnancy related fatigue versus a sleep problem? That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually relevant for not just uh, sleep and sleep disorder breathing, but so many pulmonary conditions, for instance. Mm. So fatigue is very common in pregnancy. So is it related to all the pregnancy hormones and the weight gain and the sleep disruption that happens because nocturia is very common in early pregnancy, for instance, or because there's um, uterine contractions or fetal movement that's happening at night in later pregnancy that is disrupting sleep? Or is it some other pathology. And I guess that's more uh, something for the clinician to try to look into. So then you need to ask additional questions about 
whether sleep is fragmented for other reasons, whether there are symptoms that are suggestive of insomnia, for instance, whether there's restless legs, which is a very common condition in pregnancy, actually, and that's also associated with adverse outcomes, um, or whether it's just you know, the fact that these, you know, normal things are happening. Plus a physical exam might be helpful. So I, I look at Malampati grade. I look at the, I look at the oral um, uh, cavity at the upper airway. I do neck circumference measurements, things like that. So the things that you normally do in a non-pregnant person would mm. still be helpful, but you just need to keep in mind that there are things that that are just normal pregnancy. But what I think we need to be careful of is not assuming that pathological things are just related to pregnancy. Yes. And I hear a lot of women yes. saying this, oh, you know, when I told this person or that person about this, they just told me you're pregnant, you know, yes. it'll, you'll be better after you deliver. But I hate that. I know yeah. <laughs> that being dismissive. Yes. So exactly. you said you you dropped a little pearl in there about restless leg syndrome and poor outcomes. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So restless legs uh, are quite common in pregnancy. Uh, we don't understand the pathophysiology as well, uh, I guess, but it can happen in about like 20 to 25% of women, and that's in different that's populations. Yeah, mm. that is a lot. Um, and it's not diagnosed all that often. It may have to do with pregnancy physiology as well. So where pregnancy physiology is impacting it because so, you know, iron is uh, an important thing in in uh, restless leg uh, pathophysiology. And the deficiency, the you know, physiologic deficiency, I should say. So the placenta always prioritizes the fetus in terms of iron transport. So even if mom uh, becomes iron deficient, the placenta doesn't care about that. It <laughs> continues to move iron into the baby so mm -hmm. that baby is getting enough uh, iron. So what happens is moms do become iron deficient in pregnancy. And that may be one of the things that may impact the 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 higher prevalence of RLS in pregnancy, there are some other potential uh, mechanisms. But it's not clear because it seems to get better after women deliver as well, mm -hmm. even though they bleed after they deliver. So they, they're more iron deficient after, like immediately in the postpartum period, and yet RLS gets better. So there, there might be other mechanisms that could be impacting it could it be hormonal could it be you know the sex hormones that go up or could it be something else it is not very clear but in terms of outcomes uh yes rls has been associated with uh, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy for instance the neonatal outcomes are not all clear um and there was a recent maybe a year or two ago um uh, meta-analysis that has looked at all the studies that have um, shown any sleep disturbances and perinatal outcomes like uh, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, cesarean delivery, etc. The adverse outcomes seem to be happening in women with any sleep disturbance, not uh, restless legs, including restless leg syndrome. Oh, so sort of a general, if they have a sleep disturbance, we have these outcomes. 
or exactly. higher risk of these outcomes. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So I'm thinking about, you know, you're talking about the placental iron transfer and it makes me go back and think about the physiological changes that happen during pregnancy and why that time um, predisposes us to sleep apnea. And so I'm thinking of a few and I'm sure I don't have them all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there are uh, many that we think about. Uh, Not many have been um, 100% demonstrated. So things Mm. that are possible and that are biologically plausible are things like weight gain um, and where the weight gain distribution is. So because in pregnancy, weight seems to be distributed more centrally, that may be impacting uh, FRC during pregnancy. And we know Mm -hmm. in pregnancy, uh, FRC goes down by about 20% or so. So that might impact the risk. There's also a reduction in oncotic pressures in pregnancy, which um, impacts fluid retention. So pregnant women gain about maybe seven liters in fluid in the course of pregnancy. And that can, so later in pregnancy, you can see edema in their lower extremities, even in a normal pregnancy. And as we've seen in other populations, there's um, fluid travels um, rostrally into the neck area, for instance, and that might impact um, airway potency. And, you know, all the tissue edema that happens in the upper airway that Mm. also might impact that risk. Um, There's So there's a lot of, uh, there are receptors, sex hormone receptors in the nasal cavities as well. Uh, So the increase in uh, these sex hormones during pregnancy might impact nasal resistance. And there are data that about maybe 50% of pregnancy have this uh, nasal congestion that happens. And we know nasal congestion is a risk factor for airway patency. So uh, that's also one of the things. And then there's heartburn, which happens in very many pregnant women. Uh, so there are multiple factors that uh that predispose to the development of sleep disorder breathing in pregnancy. Wow. It sounds like the odds are kind of stacked against us a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot a of changes, bit. right? <laughs> That's well, right. And so what I'm kind of wondering then is, are there, you know, specific questions we should be asking our pregnant patients? You know, you kind of suggested that there are questionnaires that are, have been um, more accepted, I suppose, in this cohort. Uh, Yeah, so I think it's definitely important to ask them about their sleep quality. Like, are they sleeping okay? Is their sleep, um, do they have symptoms of insomnia? Do they have uh, snoring? Snoring is is an important thing since you asked the question about uh, sleep disorder breathing. So these are simple things. And a few, many years ago, actually now, I think we published the paper in 2010, um, we asked women how often they are asked about snoring in pregnancy. And I think about 98% of women said that they were never asked. Wow. And then we, yes. And then we asked about 100 obstetricians uh, if they ask about snoring in pregnancy. And it was something very similar that it was like 96% of them say that they hardly ever ask about snoring. And when we looked, when we also asked them, how often do you refer pregnant women to a sleep uh, specialist for a sleep issue? 
and it was a really small percentage. I can't remember the exact numbers, but this was when we first started looking at this and there weren't too many papers that have looked at it. But I met someone at APSS this last year and she told me that uh, they were... I don't want to say too much about their study because I don't think they published it yet, but they kind of did a similar study uh, where they asked similar questions and the numbers have not improved significantly. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of education that we still need to do to try to to implement this. And we also need to simplify the process mm-hmm. because if someone tells you, in like mid-second trimester that they're having sleep issues and you want to send them to see someone and it takes two or three months for them to see a sleep physician, then, you know, people are not going to bother in doing that. So I think we need to be very creative in how we simplify these processes for the individuals that are pregnant, but also for the clinicians that are taking care of these women so that the process is seamless. Like, could it be something about embedding uh, sleep care in some high-risk populations, for instance? Mm And, um, you know, we could think about, like, there are many OB practices that, for instance, see uh, women with diabetes in specific sessions. Like, maybe we could have um, a sleep person available around that time so that we could screen these women for different things and then uh, try to uh, embed them into the care. Yeah, you're right, because the the cadence, right, for identifying and testing and then treating these patients is much faster. So it sounds like you need to be intentional and, and maybe have reserved clinic spots or, you know, I'm just trying to think about how would you operationalize that? Yeah, so it really depends on the context I think that you have and what kinds of um, what kinds of sleep practices you have and what kind of uh, OB practices you have, and try to to think about it within you know that frame um, where if you have a bigger practice, you're part of a bigger hospital institution and you have multi-specialty care or multidisciplinary practices or something like that, this could be something that could be um, uh, implemented easier than, than not. But in places, and I mean, now we can be even more creative where we have telemedicine right. things. So even if people are not co-located, uh, if they're available to do a telemedicine consult and talk about this. Like in many cases, there are plenty of things you could do with sleep and telemedicine. So that could take the place of this co-location and it can help, especially in rural areas uh, in the U.S. where people don't have easy access to uh, you know, certain specialties or certain services and we could simplify this. So it, like, I don't know that there's a solution that can be applicable to everyone. Mm-hmm. But within that context, I think if there is enough interest, and I hope there is, then people can uh, to, can talk to each other about what would work in, in certain conditions. Like maybe for low-risk pregnancies in women that don't have high blood pressure or obesity or diabetes or you know cardiac disease, et cetera, it may not make a lot of sense to 
screen for sleep disorder breathing or have someone there to look for that. But, you know, things like insomnia, for instance, there was mm -hmm. a recent paper that linked insomnia to maternal, the severe maternal morbidity as well. That can happen in women that don't have, um, you know, high morbidities. And you may still be, you may still need to uh, make things happen for these women uh, there. So really thinking and considering uh, what would be the best solution is really important. And I can tell you in my practice, I work very closely with obstetric medicine physicians who are internists that treat uh, medical problems of pregnancy. And I get a lot of referrals from them. And we are co-located with a big OBGYN practice. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of referrals that way as well. And then people can send me a message through uh, our EHR and tell me, I have this person, I'm concerned about them. So, you know, I can uh, fit them into the schedule that mm -hmm. way. So it works, but I I can't say that this is the model that should work for everyone because right. everyone's practice is different and the geographic location is different and the populations are different as well. Like there are parts in the United States where obesity is much higher than it is mm -hmm. where I am, for instance. Um, in Rhode Island, so services may need to be modified that way as well. So the whole point in screening to identify and test these patients is to put them on treatment, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering, are your patients receptive to pap therapy? So another really interesting question, <laughs> and I think it really depends on how symptomatic they are and if they were if we found out that they had sleep apnea because they participated in a research project, for instance, and now I'm going to tell them, uh, hey, I'm going to randomize you to either CPAP or something else. Um, in this case, I think uh, CPAP adherence is not the best. <laughs> and mm. this is the understatement of the century. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because in the available studies that we have, CPAP compliance ranges from like 4% to 50%. So oh, wow. it's really not great. But when I see patients that have been referred to me because they have a concern or because they're sleepy or because someone at home is telling them that they stop breathing or they're snoring very loudly or something like this, then these individuals, and I haven't looked at... Mm, you know, my numbers, I'm talking about clinical experience here, mm. but these individuals seem to be more receptive of CPAP. Oh, that's interesting. Because they, right, because they initiated this, yes. um, you know, the either the consult or they reported it. So they have a concern that mm. they would like to have addressed. And I've had patients come to me where, you know, now pulse oxes are very easy to have. So they say, you know, I have this pulse ox that I used at home and I set it at 95% because, you know, in routine care, we try to keep women at more than 95%. And it was beeping all night and I couldn't mm. sleep. So you know, that's uh, yet another issue because now beeping all night is going to keep them up all night and that has its own problems. But so I'm digressing here. But um, so there are some specific barriers to using CPAP in pregnancy, but there are also these facilitators. Um, we completed a grant recently that uh, compared 
women that are pregnant and women women that are not pregnant. And in the pregnant women, they seem to really care about the health of the baby. So the way they think about CPAP is they think about it within this context that I'm not just doing it for my health. Yes, mm. it might uh, you know, improve my blood pressure or might improve my quality of life, but I'm really concerned about my oxygen level dropping when I'm sleeping or me stopping breathing so many times during the night and what that's going to do to the baby. And yeah. they make these connections um, like even without you telling them that, like this is their major concern. And I think that impacts adherence to therapy in general uh, in pregnancy, as long as it's not something that may harm the baby. Mm. But CPAP is not a, it's not a medication. So uh, the risks of that, as far as we know now, are minimal to the baby. So, uh, or minimal in general, I should not say to the baby because we haven't studied that. I, I say this um, uh, with caution, but CPAP is non-pharmacological therapy. So when women are um, hesitant about taking medications, CPAP is this other option that is a possibility for them. And if they can't do CPAP, then is there a sort of pregnancy-specific positional therapy we should consider? So there's not a lot of data about this. So there have been a couple of studies uh, that have looked at it. So um, uh, you could use a belt that can move them in a certain direction, but we don't know what the effect of that is on respiratory parameters, for instance. Mm. So we need to study that a little bit better. And then adherence to this when pregnancy is so uncomfortable and women are uncomfortable for various reasons and they mm. wake up often for physiologic uh, reasons. We need to to make sure that from a feasibility standpoint, this is something we can do. There are some data about immediate postpartum women um, doing better from a respiratory standpoint and from a cross-sectional area of the upper airway standpoint. Uh, but these are postpartum women. So that's a slightly different uh, physiology as well. So the uterus is starting to, to get better, but then there's, you know, blood volume that is significantly increased in the postpartum period that might impact things. So that doesn't necessarily apply uh, to pregnancy either. And then 45 degrees is hard to accomplish mm. at home as well. Yeah, I was kind of I was kind of wondering about that. Um, I will say though that this conversation that we've had really, you know, now I feel like we um, need to do more outreach. <laughs> we need to do more sort of public facing education on snoring yes. and sleep, right? And sort of yep. recognizing that it's not just a nuisance that, but it may be a sign of. Um, so thank you for that. You've really you've really motivated me to reframe how I have thought about this historically. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, we do need to do a lot of education, you know, public facing and clinician facing uh, to try to, to improve the care of women as well. And I would love to urge women to participate in studies because this is how we learn more and this is how we can apply um, things into clinical care because um, we can't extrapolate from the non-pregnant population. We really need to study the pregnant population separately and that's how we learn and we 
improve their care. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to help us better understand how sleep medicine specialists can better support women during pregnancy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>